Good afternoon, Sarah Hepla. Good afternoon, Nancy Rommelman. You know what's happening here in Dallas? I don't know if it's happening in New York yet. Spring has sprung. Yesterday. Yes, yes, yes. It was the first, it was the first day I was sitting in my apartment writing and I was like, wait, what's that brightness behind me? Why do I feel so alive all of a sudden? It was mm. the first day. It felt like the first day of spring. Yes. yes. Well, here in Dallas, the you know, the blossoms, the, mm-hmm. the tree blossoms are going and uh, it's 90 degrees outside and it's really quite, it's unusual for February for us. So I don't know what this bodes, but it's meant, you know, I had the first day of air conditioning yesterday. Enjoy it while you may. That's all. Yeah. Gather ye rosebuds while it's warm in February. Yeah. That's a famous poet. Um, so yeah, we're, we're here under the wire. I thought we could do it this morning, but we both have been a little, um, a little busy lately. And, um, I was on deadline and you've had a lot of things going on too, Sarah Hepla, haven't you? Am I correct in that? I feel like, honestly, I feel like I've delivered a baby and I'm not like my body is a freaking mess. I'm so tired (laughs) and I eat like I'm like, oh, is that carbs? Let me put carbs on it. Like, I just, I have this, like, cavernous hunger. Because I've been waking up at, like, 1.30 to finish a draft of my book. And um, I write. And you the- did? Yeah, I did. Yeah. But I haven't put it in yet, so don't congratulate me. I've got another month to to let it sit there and um, kind of what we call letting the writing cool. Mm-hmm. And- uh, so that I can go back to it in a few weeks and do another edit before I turn it over to the cops, meaning my editor. It, um, we we also do that, um, as you know, uh, just like with a piece that I had to turn in today. I worked till about nine o'clock last night. And I was like, shut it down, Nancy, shut it down. And you come back the next day and you're able to do what needs to be done, but you just couldn't do it in one run. It just, you just, it just had to marinate or whatever you call it, letting it cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's always fun. It's fun. You have to come back with clear eyes. And then also my mom always says like, your subconscious is working on it even when you're not. And, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly seems to be the truth that that's, there's some synthesis going on. Um, well, it's also the I, case as we've talked about, like I was up in the middle of the night twice to get out of my bed and write down notes and words. Because oh, I knew I had to had to go in the piece, but it was two o'clock in the morning and I wasn't about to start working again. I was like, you think you'll remember, you won't. You better write them down. So in the morning you can uh, you can use them. I so. just email myself stuff. It's so lame. Mm, I email I, my stuff myself things to my own email so then the next morning I can wake up and put them in my notes. And you're like, but, oh, but because my phone's me? right there. It's easier for me to have a phone than a notepad. Yeah. I don't keep my phone by my bed. Well, you shouldn't, but I'm no. a lonely, you know, person. So I don't have <laughs> it's just me and Wallace. So uh but uh, in addition to the draft, which is just a billion words long, um, I did a 14,000-word story for Texas Monthly, another 4,000-word story for Texas Monthly, and uh, I'm late on another piece. So um, it's been an epic stretch of tippy-tap. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the part of the big news in my life um, is that I am starting a job tomorrow. Unbelievable. So great. So it's great. like a real live job. <laughs> I'm going to be like job. a legitimate job holder in this America. 
I'm going to be a feature staff writer for the Dallas Morning News. I have, let me, uh, they just, Dallas Morning News is based here in Dallas, in case you didn't know. When I told this to you, for some reason, I think you thought it was going to be on television, didn't you? I don't, yes, I did. I don't remember why. I was like, and we didn't, we didn't go into detail about it. You're like, I'm going to be on the Dallas Morning News. I was like, wow, is she going to be like, hi, it's Sarah Heffler on the scene at, I don't know I, why I, I thought that. I think it was the use of the word morning because morning mm-hmm. is so like morning show. Mm-hmm. And so for whatever reason, you stuck on morning and you were like, you're going to be great on television. And I was like, <laughs> well, I might be, but I won't be this time. Um, Dallas Morning News is our local paper. Uh, my beat, according to my job description, is, quote, Dallas's big personalities, its lively scenes, and the insider stories that get people talking. Um, pretty much a dream gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is a city. I, I wrote something this morning that I'm either going to post on my blog or maybe the paper wants to run it. I don't know. Um, but the But the idea that I was kind of unfolding was I grew up in Dallas kind of wanting to live anywhere else. You know, the cool stories happened on the coasts. Um, If you were in Dallas, it was kind of like you were just an also ran kind of B team player. And I finally made it out to New York in my thirties. And what I noticed about the writers that I worked with, with the high profile names and the, book covers and the, you know, all the kind of fancy things was that they weren't that different from the writers I had worked with back in Dallas. In other words, the talent divide was not there. It was a geographic divide that some of these people lived in New York and some of these people lived in Dallas. And um, I mean, that's not always true. There were probably more per capita, certainly more Jonathans in my Brooklyn neighborhood than where I lived in Dallas. We had Jonathan Franz and Jonathan Lethem, Jonathan Saffron Foer. It was a, it was a murder of Jonathans for a while there. Um, but the, uh, you know, what I what I found was like, oh, you know, it it was really just a function of of your like your proximity to the hot seat of media that really determined whether or not you had a high profile gig in many ways I found um, because well, there's sure. so many great writers across the country. Um, but to be in New York, you had uh, the kind of greased hands of um, meeting people at parties, knowing friends of friends, so-and-so can help you get this job. I mean, it was all sort of a whisper network of, of employment. So, so anyway, that that was how uh, I left New York, was kind of realizing like, oh, maybe I didn't need to be in New York after all. Although I did. I learned a lot of things. Um, and when I came back to Dallas, I didn't plan to be here, stay here for very long, but I have. I've stayed here for 11 years. And one of the things that has struck me over those 11 years is what an astonishing place this is to write about because not only are there great stories, great characters, and just to name a few of our characters, you know, Mark Cuban, George W. Bush, Glenn Beck, Stormy Daniels, uh, Jerry freaking Jones, 
Um, this is not even to mention all the kind of Hall of Fame sports stars that like, you know, you can run into at Kroger, you know, your Troy Aikman and your Michael Irvin and your Emmett Smith and your Dirk Nowitzki. Um, Dirk Nowitzki. Yes, ma'am. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Yeah. 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 He's kicking around here somewhere. Roger Staubach, the the like mm-hmm. legendary football mm-hmm. quarter, the, the quarterback of the of the 70s. He, he runs a real estate firm here. That's like really successful because everybody wants to buy their house from Roger Staubach. Duh. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like so obvious. So anyway, um, you know, but that's not even mentioning like the religious figures and the conservative firebrands and the society people. Um, I don't like galas and charity events. I don't even know what's happening there. It's like the Harlan Crow. Harlan Crow lives here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these people that probably run, you know, pull the levers on a lot of the world while they're sitting in their Barca lounger or whatever the hell they sit in and fancy mansions in North Dallas. So it's, it's a really exciting opportunity for me to get to know my city, um, to do what I think journalists should do, which is to bring the news of the world to the people sitting around the fire, whether that fire is here in Dallas, you know, or, um, anywhere else in the world where they might be interested in our stories. So I'm excited. It's a subscription. It's, you know, I'll be behind the paywall. This will be interesting for me. Well, I mean, it is a dream gig to be able to tell the stories of the city and the ones that aren't, especially the ones that are not like already overexposed, right? Um, It's, you know, the, the, the old story with the with uh, Jimmy Breslin and get the grave digger, right? When he went to JFK's mm-hmm. funeral and everybody was talking to, you know, the families and the doctors and who was, uh, you know, the grassy knoll. And then he found the guy g- digging the grave. And that's the story we remember. Um, and you have the story opportunity. that took place in Dallas, by the way. Yes. And you remember you d- took me to the grassy mm-hmm. knoll. Didn't we go there? And it was very. Yes. And you had a very um, negative uh, energy field reaction. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to talk about that a little later. Not that particular energy field reaction, but um, but the era. But in any case, um, it is a dream gig. I, I sort of had that gig when I was at the LA Weekly to just go and, and find things that are part of the fabric of your city that maybe nobody has ever thought to tell this way at all. It's, uh, but were you on staff? Well, I was not on staff at the LA Weekly, but as Loria Choa, um, the editor I mostly worked under, she's like, everybody thinks you are. I probably wrote between 100 and 200 stories for the LA Weekly. Um, lots of cover stories. I had columns. I mean, it's just like, it was my regular gig. Um, and right. And I don't mean to yeah. diminish that. All no, I'm no, saying no, 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 no. is that that this is the first, like I'm, everybody thinks I write for Texas Monthly. And I mean, right. I do. I'm a, I'm a quote unquote writer at large, whatever the hell that means. That's honestly, that's the situationship version of a, a, a like relationship with a, with a, publication is you're like not committed, but you're like kind of dating. Um, Remember back in the day, and I'm sure it is the same now, except there are so, so many fewer publications. There was contributing editor. You're a contributing yeah. editor now. I was on a, I was a, probably a contributing editor at eight different publications over my lifetime, which was great because you either had a column or they, I regularly called you. I like you. People think I work for reason magazine. Not that I've been writing yeah. for them so much, but because I have so often, but I've always been freelance. 
but I'm very yeah. You're a free agent; can't pin you down. Well, I you know I've actually asked for jobs from several places I work for. I think I asked for a job at the Weekly, asked for the job at, a job at the LA Times because I was writing for them a lot, and people were like, "No, no, it's good. Just keep doing what you're doing." I'm like, yeah. "Okay." Yeah, <laughs> I, I've had the same situation, and and it's you know it's not really in in their best interest to make you no. a staffer. Right. And so if they can. So it's that's why I say situationship. I mean, you know, it's like it's like if they can get yeah, if they can get the nookie and not have to put a ring on it, they're going to keep doing that. <laughs> and most of these places I get it. I get it. it. Most magazines at this point are in an incredible leveraging position, which is one of the astonishing reasons that they cave to their younger employees. It makes no sense because it's like these jobs are like worth their weight in gold. They're just not around anymore. And especially in the past couple of months when we've seen just crazy, crazy attrition. I mean, you are, it's its kind of astounding, um, listeners. You should know for someone like in January of 2024 to be offered a full-time staff job. It's a, it's a bit unusual, but you are, uh, you are um, unusual in your talents. So it makes sense. Well, thanks. I mean, you know, it's very possible that the entire industry of journalism is going belly up in a year. So it's like, I don't pretend that like, oh, I'm going to start my pension. And in 30 years, you know, it's like, I'll do this for a year, you know, like, I'll see how it goes. I don't know if I'll like it. I don't know if they'll like me. And, and, and it's, I've never worked at a daily paper. It's cool for me because I've worked at an alternative news weekly. I've worked at Salon, which was an online magazine. Um, and I've worked at a magazine magazine, a monthly magazine in Texas Monthly. But I have never worked at a daily newspaper, which is kind of like the original blueprint of modern journalism, right? I mean, this is the churn and burn that we see in the movies. And so I'm I'm going to learn about it. There's a it's it's in a beautiful building downtown. It's 10 minutes away. Of course I'm like bitching about like how I have to get dressed 3 times a day. No, I'm ser- I'm so spoiled. I'm what does so that mean? spoiled. Dressed three times a day. Why? What does that mean? Well, I mostly spend my mornings in my nightgown in bed writing. Yeah, you know, I write from bed, hanging out with Wallace. And so I don't tr- get dressed unless I go to the store. And if I do, I'm just throwing on like jeans and a shirt. So the idea of like business casual is like, oh my God. But right, that's only getting dressed once. What are the other two? Dresses? I have to go to work three times a week. Oh, I thought you meant three times a day, three different outfits. I'm like, what's happening here? Sarah? Oh, right, I'm hosting the Oscars, okay, got it, got it, got and so it. I have to have my <laughs> more. You know, I have to have my opening monologue outfit, and then I change into my sequin dress. Yeah, yeah. Um, no. Did you have some other uh, other announcements before we get to our um, actually some things that kind of have to do with the Oscars? Um, Nancy, I have so many announcements. Can I do okay. them? Like, let's yes. just go through them. Let's, let's just hit them. this. First of all, I want to say that I'm going to be at the Unspeakeasy Retreat this weekend. Uh, this is Megan Downs' um, retreat for kind of free-thinking women. And yes, this is ladies only. Uh, it's going to be in Austin, Texas, the great Austin, Texas, where they keep it mostly weird. Um if you are curious about joining us, I don't know if there's tickets or not. I'm just making this announcement because I, I heard Katie Herzog do it on our podcast and I was like, shit, I got to do that too. So uh, you can go to the unspeakeasy.com. Um, we have a first Sunday Zoom. 
coming up this Sunday. This so Sunday. I will go from Austin, where I will be in my evening gown, <laughs> pleasing the masses of free-thinking ladies, we hope. And then I will turn around, come back to Dallas, and I will do a first Sunday Zoom with you and our people. And that's going to be 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. I have recommended, I have asked our our listeners, our peeps, to bring their suggestion for a movie or TV show we should watch as a group. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do anything. That's right. But you, you can. And we would like you to. And Nancy, I'd ask you to bring one. Ote. Wow. That was racially insensitive. Was it? I mean... Yeah, to the buckwheats in our audience, I think it was. You know, when I went on to a, a movie where I met Tim in South Carolina, it was this tiny, tiny little airport. Pauly's Island, I think, was the airport. And they had in the the little gift shop there, which was tiny, which is tinier than the room I'm sitting in, um, they, had, they had T-shirts. Like the entire front of it was buckwheat saying, Ote, which is why <laughs> I think that just flew out of my mouth because we all were like, what is this? But there we go. It's so. funny how much we loved that sketch. When I, when my my, oh my people, goodness. Kids, my cousins and I, I mean, we just thought it was the funniest thing. And it's like, what was going on there? Like, I Well, he reprised even... it a couple of years ago, you know. When he did? Eddie Murphy, when Eddie Murphy hosted, I think it was about three years ago, he reprised oh it. Oh, I'm finding the clip and putting it in the oh episode my God. notes. It was fantastic. It's fantastic. Um, speaking of uh, Saturday Night Live, did you watch Shane Gillis? Okay, so I didn't watch it in real time because I was upstate. There's no TV or anything up there. But I did watch his monologue last night. I actually laughed out loud twice, like mm -hmm. barked laughing. Mm -hmm. And it made me, I also read somebody, I can't remember who it was, tweeting about sort of the dishonesty of some- Pesca. It's Pesca. Pesca, of course, our, our love, Mike Pesca, um, mm -hmm. saying that some publication, Daily Beast or someplace had said the the deafening silence that his, that his monologue was received with. I'm sorry, people were laughing at that monologue. I didn't hear any silence. The only kind of silence in air quotes was his kind of his delivery, like, oh man, oh, sorry. thought that would have landed better or something like that. I yeah, thought it was good. It's unclear. You know, he does make a point of pausing during the monologue and saying, oh boy, I can see all of y'all and uh, it's not good. And that creates a, an impression for the audience that he's bombing. Um, it, I thought he was comically doing, it. I thought it was comic Me too. anxiety. Me um, too. However, there was also the phenomenon much remarked about on Twitter that the, in particular, female musician behind him never cracked a smile and seemed to make a real point of never cracking a smile during the whole thing. Well, I don't how know. I never pay attention to musicians. They hear it before. They've heard this. They're not supposed to draw attention to themselves. I don't know what, like, I have no idea what the standard is. So I don't, I didn't notice that. I didn't know. I don't know how many musicians are on the stage, but all I can say is that life is better if you're enjoying things. So I'm sorry that she didn't. There you go. So there were um, funny commercials, too. Like, I didn't watch it in real time, but there were several funny commercials. One was um, a, a, a car company called Isis. And then the tagline was, what? we're the good we're the good Isis, you know, what? and it, it was clearly like, you know, like this place that had had this name and then didn't realize whatever. It's funny. It's funny. Um, 
He he made a joke. Shane Gillis, who, you know, if you don't know, was hired back in, I think, 2019 to be a cast member on Saturday Night Live before the um, Twitter archivists of rage found a couple of, quote, problematic tweets that he'd done back in the Mesozoic era. Um, and he was asked not to come on the show. But he has... Star has exploded. He's become a really big deal. You know, he's got this big Netflix special and um, he tours and fills out uh, stadiums. And so he was asked to come back on something that not many people have done. I think, you know, Norm MacDonald was asked to come back on after he was booted from Saturday Night Live. But this is an unusual thing. So, um, you know, and there were a lot of there was a drumbeat of kind of like. They shouldn't be platforming him don't you know why is this happening you know all this the daily beast the daily beast used to be like a great publication not mm-hmm. great i mean but like for it's for like for like an online only publication i remember when it launched because i was at salon and they were our direct compet- competitor like meaning that when you sat down with advertisers they looked at the daily beast numbers and they looked at yours to see who was you know they needed to pay more for the ads or whatever. Um, it was that and Slate, but Daily Beast came up out of nowhere. They were, you know, brought together by Tina Brown. They had a lot, a great metabolism and um, a big building that looked like Superman's cave near the, <laughs> near the high line. And, you know, it was just, it was a, it was a pretty impressive place. I thought about going there for a while. The one of the editors brought me in to talk. And anyway, I, I don't know what's happened there. But, you know, journalism. Here's one of the other reasons I'm so excited to be in local journalism. I'm sorry to make this whole thing about myself. But I, I have to do it sometimes. When I look at what's wrong with the world, I think one of the things that's wrong is that so many of us are invested in national politics where we have absolutely no sway, no voice. Our vote really doesn't even count. I live in Texas. There's no way it's not going red. And, you know, and yet people here make themselves mental over presidential politics, Washington politics. Meanwhile, they don't know who the mayor is. By the way, the mayor is Eric Johnson. He's having all sorts of like scandals right now. Our city manager just left. It's a shit show. But. (laughs) They don't even know. And we are so focused on this culture war, national brouhaha, fighting with each other across state lines. Meanwhile, because we know we're not going to run into each other at the store. You can say anything to those people. Everybody in Texas is worthless. Everybody in California is worthless. We can just say that to each other and never get challenged because you live an entire half a country away. And I think it's making us sick. You know, it's interesting. Um, We sometimes, you know, let's say we're readers of the Daily Beast and there's a writer or a series of writers there that are driving us bananas. And we really feel that they're doing sort of work that is polluting and not useful. We kind of assume, or I assume that it's the writer, right? Well, I'll give you an example. Max Tanney was a writer and he, one of his beats that he was on that he was writing about was Donald McNeil Jr., who was drummed out of the New York Times mm-hmm. a couple of years ago for saying the N-word. I, I wrote about it extensively. I found the Daily Beast's reporting, which Max, Max Tanney was part of, to be execrable. And I called them out publicly numerous times on mm-hmm. podcasts and in print. Well, Max Tanney now goes over to Semaphore. He's great. And he's a terrific writer. He's yeah, a he's terrific a writer. So you realize that, in fact, it's maybe your publication that is corralling your writing and the stories into 
what they need, which is one of the benefits of being a freelancer. It's that I get to write for places that don't do that to my work, or they do it a little and I can live with it or I decide that I cannot. Or so. you don't only write for that place. No. Right? Be- because, right. I mean, to your point, Michael Moynihan worked at Vice. Michael Moynihan also worked at the Daily Beast. Daily Beast. I worked right. at Salon, which, you know, Salon has had a headline problem and a kind of what are we crisis of, of meaning and purpose for years now. You know, to the point where, like, I'm still friends with the people that work there, but I'm sorry, I don't read it regularly. I don't really know what's going on. So, um, but, you know, there was a time when I said that I worked at Salon and people assumed a certain um, strident, correct feminist dogma opinion and and, and on my part. And, And the reason that I, and I, I bucked against it so hard, but, you know, I fought my own like small little battles while I was there. But anyway, it's like coming from, like, I grew up in a a really ritzy neighborhood in Dallas, but we were middle-class. And anytime anybody in my area finds out that I'm from that neighborhood, they're like, oh yeah, you were rich. And I'm like, no, actually I wasn't. But in some ways I was because I was going to this school, like it's all relative, whatever, blah, 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 blah. What I'm saying is that, you know, you're absolutely right to make that point that that some of these publications really do impose certain mm-hmm. structures on your writing that you can't find your way out of. Um, you know, Andrew Sullivan is a hell of a writer, but he's been doing and, and he did amazing work at New York Magazine, but he's been doing incredible work at his own Substack. Ditto Matt Taibbi. Right. You know, because you get to run as fast as you want. And you can maybe fall down sometimes, or you can call in weird people that you would never have been able to talk to at the other publication. And sometimes it's going to fly and sometimes it's not. I mean, look at Taibbi. He was all about, you know, in with Twitter and exposing all these things. And then all of a sudden he's the enemy, right? So oh, I know. In, in terms I know. of Elon Musk. Well, and, so. and that said, I mean, I just gave two examples of people that freed themselves off from the corset and went and ran into independent journalism. I'm not doing that. I'm going back into old school journalism, which is the daily newspaper. But, you know, uh, and and I think there's going to be some weird things for me. I can't cuss anymore. And that's going to sound really silly. But I've been able to do that my entire career. Um, I'm probably not going to be able to to use kind of like vernacular, like slang. Um, there's going to be all sorts of little things, microaggressions in my editing <laughs> process that I'm going to be like, what do you mean I can't do that? Um, micro insults uh, to my voice, capital V. But, you know, here's the thing, Nancy. We are better when we learn to fit different boxes. You know, a journalist really should be a jack of all trades. You know, I I love about my career that I started out in theater. I went into, you know, music criticism. Uh, I was a sex blogger for a while. Uh, I was a travel columnist for a while. I was um, the personal essays editor. Um, it, it, I've done so many things. I, I loved when I was coming of age, and this is especially true at New York with the people I worked at Salon, they seemed to have this like Swiss army knife of beats that they had done over the years, you know? And they they didn't know everything about it, but they knew so much because they'd done seven years reviewing restaurants or seven years, you know, covering cops. I, I love that shit. It's great. So before we get to our um, naked part of the show. Um, yeah, I have a correction, actually. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, t- it's too many announcements, but um, 
listen, we found a, a mistake. We found two mistakes in an episode from more than a year ago, episode 54. This is ridiculous, but the truth is, is that we have to correct our mistakes when we find them. This is a better late than never situation. Our intern, our awesome new intern, CJ, he's excavating some of our old clips and um, putting them over on our new Instagram page, Smoke and Podcast, which you should join. You know, we're slowly building our, our following and our audience there. But he found an old clip of me talking about meeting Gail Garcia Barnal from E2 Mama Tambien. And it's a really funny story, and I'd forgotten I told it to you. But there are no less than two mistakes in this short clip. Indeed. We both made them. We both made a um, mistake. I said that Gail Garcia Bernal's eyes were very blue. They are very green. And I said that he had the same birthday as me. My birthday is October 30th. Well, it turns out that his birthday is November 30th. I so I guess it was just wishful thinking on my part, Sarah. I love that we have a new intern that's fact-checking episodes from <laughs> two years ago. It's so fantastic. I mean, it's slightly scary because it's like, whoa, that was a minute yeah. and a half. What else did we get wrong yeah. In, yeah. in the 59 other minutes that were yeah. in that show? Yeah. But he is keeping us honest. We love that. Uh Go check out our Smoke em podcast page. Now, Nancy Rommelman, hit me with your nudes. In a phrase? Yes. Send nudes. Send nudes. Yeah. I don't know if that's an invitation to listeners, but yeah, I think it's not. But What? Um, well, I, do you want them to send you nudes? Oh, oh, you mean it's not an invitation for other – no, 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 I don't. No. I mean, some of you maybe, but not yet. <laughs> I don't know you quite well enough. I don't know um, you well enough. So you sent me a picture the other day, or it's actually a little video of uh, Barry Kagan, Kogan. Kiagan. 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 He is part of um, Vanity Fair's Oscars. They always have like fabulous Oscars cover with everybody looking amazing. This was a little video of him dancing naked, sort of, you know, playing. Obviously, if you saw Saltburn, salt the end is is him like dancing through this incredible mansion naked. And it's a great scene in the movie. It's really funny. But the clip, the Vanity Fair clip is probably, oh, I don't know, 12 seconds or something. Yeah, it's a gif, basically. Okay. So in real life, I do not like seeing men unclothed in just about any way unless they are being directly unclothed with me, okay? I don't like to see a this guy This was like, you, you were so okay, strong I, on this. I was I really surprised by this. I know. So, so I, you know, if I'm with a guy, yes, yes, that's fine. I don't like to see a dude without a shirt on walking down the street. Basketball, skins and shirts, fine. They're playing basketball. The beach, I accept it. But otherwise, I do not want to see naked men. I absolutely loved seeing this. And it had nothing to do with the fact that like, oh, he's naked. You're looking at his butt. Though I did look at his butt. It is simply because of the joy. Yeah. He was so joyous and it was so playful. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's the way you can do this nude stuff. It's like it was playful. It was not exploitive. It wasn't look at me. It was just delightful. So, 
Sarah, thank you for sending that to me. And your thoughts? Well, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, you know, it was so interesting when you had such a strong reaction to male nudity. And it was yeah. like you had already determined and articulated this boundary for yourself. And I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. I hadn't. I, I was like, oh, interesting that she feels that way. And then I started to reflect on how I feel. Like I had realized I didn't really have any kind of articulated stance on male nudity for myself at all. And so I started to do that over the next few days. I was like, oh, so Nancy says she doesn't like men with their shirt off. I, I kind of think I don't either. Now, let me just explain this to you. Um, like you, um, I very much want to see the man that I'm with, sure. uh, disrobe. That's, that's, yes. that's a, that's a good time. It's a good me. thing. Well, it's that time again. It's the end of the free portion of the podcast. Uh, we would love for you to hear the whole thing and get oodles of other really cool stuff that we give you each week when you become a paid subscriber. So you can do that easily by reading the episode notes, which I know you do, because we have links aplenty in there, or you can head over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and become a paid subscriber today. You'll be glad you did.